It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Greetings and welcome to a special Thanksgiving edition of Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. And then type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. I am your host, David Moses. Later in the show, we're going to be joined by Sarah Milroy, the chief curator at the McMichael, as well as Anishinaabe artist Bonnie Devine, who are both involved in an exciting new Indigenous art exhibition coming this fall to the McMichael. But first, we have Tim Riley with us, Associate Professor of Journalism, Graduate Program Director at Emerson College in Boston. Now, Tim is an NPR critic and Emerson College Associate Professor uh, he reviews pop and classical music for NPR's Here and Now and On Point, and he has contributed to the New York Times Radio Silence, the Los Angeles Book Review, and TruthDig.com. There's more to tell you about Tim, but first of all, I want to tell you and welcome Tim to the show. Tim, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. And Tim, we're here talking today about an article you wrote in the conversation about the Beatles, the messy breakup 50 years ago of the Beatles. 50 years ago. I know, it's just, it, barely, it barely makes sense to me, and I actually came late to this party. So mm. I was born in 1960, mm. so I was 10 when they broke up, and I've built my professional profile around being a Beatles scholar. <laughs> so um, it's really, so there's several points of interest here. One is that we care at all that there's a, we're marking the 50th anniversary yeah. of the breakup, uh, which means we prize the catalog still a lot, right? Because we're, we're, we consider that in news terms, you call this a hard peg, right? You don't yeah. do this story any other time, but the 50 year anniversary. Yeah. The other thing is it was a really, uh, it was, the Beatles were both musicians and enormous cultural symbols yeah. and they, they had an intriguing self-awareness about this um, status. Mm. And so they would, they constantly would refer to it and play with it. And um, the idea of the Beatles breaking up was, you know, in some ways, in many people's minds, it was emblematic of um, this utopian energy that was set loose during the sixties that was, uh, coming to an end that was seeing a twilight that was and faced a very uncertain future. So the breakup of the Beatles in symbolic terms was something that weighed very heavily on their audience at the time. And is something that we we mark as an anniversary as a way of saying, yeah, that was a very interesting cultural shift that took place in the 60s. The Beatles are fundamental to that. You can't understand the 60s without understanding the Beatles. Mm. And the breakup of the Beatles is has become sort of imprinted on their legend as like this is this is one of the most famous breakups in history mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot to unpack here yeah, now tim just before we we got started you had mentioned that you were surprised by the amount of press the article got i thought that was really interesting uh, for a couple of reasons First of all, you said that that it was the press that was really, uh, you know, and and the the focus uh, of the press on the Beatles. So my question is, is it the press that is still interested uh, from their own lingering, you know, maybe um, experience or or history with the band, do you think? Or or do you think that the youth and by and large, the, the general population is still craving this stuff? Well, so it's a combination, right? Because the press wouldn't be latching onto this stuff right. unless it knew that its its readership or its viewership was interested. Right. So they are trying to, you know, they are trying to get clicks. Yep. Um, but um, I would say that there's several things going on here. One is uh, the people who are running uh, the press and the media these days are uh, the of the older generation, the boomer generation, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they consider the Beatles like a newsworthy topic where right. the students that I teach at Emerson who were born 20 some years, right. 20, sometimes 30 years, yeah. not 30, but 20 years after John Lennon is killed, yeah. uh, they, you know, they have this vague idea that the Beatles are kind of a big topic, but a lot of them, uh, don't own any Beatles records. Yeah, they maybe know one or two Beatles songs, right. and they're you know they're 
they're just not it's just it it hasn't filtered down um the way it did in a couple previous generations but this generation really needs um they need to be introduced and sort of led through the catalog and why this stuff is important and some of them catch on and get it and some of them are like yeah it just doesn't really do much for them yeah. You know, it's very interesting to see how this stuff translates. Yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, that, and I guess that's why I was asking that question for exactly those reasons of, of what you just pointed out. Um, and so uh, that is interesting to hear because music, I guess, to me, seems so far removed from from the Beatles at this point in time, contemporary. Well, I would, I have a little bit subtler uh, view on that. Um, I think that there is a strain of guitar rock that persists. Mm. Uh, and is still an important piece of the pop landscape, but it's not dominant. And mm-hmm. it's it stopped being dominant. I don't know. You you know you you would choose Nirvana. Someone might choose someone else. Mm-hmm. But there are still bands like Tame Impala who are very clearly Beatle influenced. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, you can't. There's this sort of too too strong a vein uh, still flowing through pop culture that's very very Beatle. Beatle oriented, Beatle centric. It's still too much part of the way people think about music to, to dismiss it completely. Mm. But it's not it's not as dominant as it used to be. Right. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more of the production values. I guess that's what I was thinking of. However, having said that, uh, fifty years ago, uh, what do you want to share with us about? I understand you you had a conversation with someone that that uh, was very close to John Lennon. And uh, and could call him up and, and have a conversation with him, and, and and he told you something about this. So this is Connolly's story, and he's he he has his own Lennon book, and but he's he was a wonderful source because he we was friendly with the band and with John Lennon in particular, and Lennon did confide in him that he was thinking about leaving the band. And um, he made it very clear to this journalist friend that he wanted that off the record. He didn't want him that, that made public right. yet. Um, and then there's all of this uh, deeply. I mean, I can go way inside baseball on it, but basically the Beatles are sort of trying to figure out whether they're going to stay together, are they going to do another album, all this stuff. And uh, they finally wind up making Abbey Road and going through with it. And um, the following spring, the debate tightens and the arguments get more fierce and um mccartney turns uh, his breaking up of the band he's leaving the band into a publicity stunt as a way of selling his first solo record and lennon feels very aggrieved about this and like hang on that was i actually i'm the one who left and a lot of people on the inside knew it including paul but they didn't report it so he gets mad at ray Connolly. He says how come you didn't print that and yeah, right. <laughs> in confidence you said not to print it he said well you're the effing journalist That's right. you know just such typical lenin talking out of all sides of his mouth right. and getting angry that he trusted a reporter and the reporter actually honored his honored his word and yeah. reported it yeah. um but it, it also gives you an index of what big news this was yeah. in the spring of 1970 that paul mccartney was announcing his i'm leaving the band and um that you know, they, they all had a, an intense kind of self-awareness about how big an impact that story was going to have. And they were all, uh, they were edging close to it at several different moments in this period. We now know. Um, and they, they, nobody broached it. And Lennon, Lennon kind of feels like, oh, you know, I just, I just didn't quite have the nerve to do it. And Paul had the nerve. <laughs> it's just something mm-hmm. you feel a little envious about. So it's a very interesting internal politics going on there. Yeah, for sure. And of course, um, but John Lennon, he uh, he brings in a producer that Paul isn't too happy about. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah. So the story of um, we're talking about a uh, sort of like a 14 month stretch between the recording of Abbey Road. Sorry, the recording of Let It Be, uh, which then just gets shelved because they don't feel like it's worthy. Mm. Um, they grab a couple singles off of it. Um, they make Abbey Road and Let It Be is just sitting there on the shelf. They just don't, they just don't, they can't go near it. They feel like it's not a project worth uh, reviving. But in the spring of 1970, they realize, uh oh, we all have to pay our lawyers. We need some cash flow here. <laughs> uh, and so they go to try and start, 
they, they, they reapproach this material, which has seen some rough mixes in the previous year, and they hire uh, Phil Spector to come in and produce right. Abbey Road because they're huge Phil Spector girl group fans, and they've always wanted to work with him, and they figure, like, if anyone, you know, Lennon's thinking is if anyone can whip this into shape, it's Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. And Spector comes over and produces stuff, and when McCartney hears the early uh, masters for the projected uh, let it be record he hates the choir and strings that right. he put on long and winding road right. and um you know he writes this very famous letter where he just basically tells phil specter to go to go stick it somewhere right. and it, you know uh i don't know it's always struck me as really curious that mccartney gets so upset that somebody over romanticizes one of his most romantic weepy songs i mean <laughs> I, I, it's a little you know it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit over the top. I mean, it's it's a very I, I've it's never struck me as like completely discordant with the material. I think it's a perfectly reasonable production decision to make with that arrangement to put mm. some strings on it. But McCartney really felt like this was a betrayal. This was a betrayal. So here's where here's where the argument turns. You know, is as much aesthetic as it is business oriented, and um, you know, he he he, he, he there was not buy-in to that final mix of, of Let It Be. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in uh, one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Please don't go away because we will be right back with more right here on Element FM right after this. <laughs> Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It's a pleasure to tell you that with us uh, here on the show is Tim Riley. He's an associate professor of journalism, uh, graduate uh, program director at Emerson College in Boston. Uh, he is also the NYP, uh, NYT book review, uh, hailed rather his book, uh, Tell Me Why, a Beatles Commentary for bringing new insight into the act that we've known for all these years. And and he's also authored Hard Rain, a Dylan commentary, Madonna, Illustrated, uh, Fever, How Rock and Roll Transformed Gender, and Lennon, Man, Myth, Music. In 2016, he won the L.A. Press uh, Nadja Book Cultural Critic Award. And with Walter Everett, he co-authored What Goes On, The Beatles, Their Music, In Their Time. 2019. It's a pleasure to have uh, Tim on the show. Uh, Tim, with this, with the Beatles breakup, um, I recently saw something on Netflix. It was a, a, a documentary. It was it was really about the influence that uh, Yoko Ono had had on the band, and 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 of course John Lennon. What oh, so right. So Yoko is the great. Um, you know, she got labeled a witch during this period because she was mm-hmm. seen as an intruder and somebody who swooped into the band. And shortly after she starts showing up at Beatles sessions, there's a lot of rancor, a lot of um, disagreement, a lot of acrimony, and then they break up. So um, it's very convenient to pin the Beatle breakup on this outsider figure of Yoko Ono. Mm-hmm. But I think it is wrongheaded. Um, and I've always sort of tried to argue this in my books that um you know, the, there's no way Yoko would have attended all these sessions if Lennon hadn't insisted that she be attached to his hip at all of these sessions. Right. And and Lennon really is kind of using her as a force field. He's using Yoko as a buffer. Uh, he's bringing her to band meetings, which had previously only been the four of them. And he's suddenly starting to bring his new lover into these meetings. And she is she considers herself a full participant and <laughs> Lennon kind of sanctions this idea that she is now a full fledged participant at Beatle business meetings. Mm. Now this is very disruptive and controversial within the band. And we have now transcripts of conversations that they have about it during the let it be sessions. Mm. And it's a very touchy subject because they understand that Lennon, that to piss off Lennon in this direction would make him leave the band instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also don't feel like, it's fair that he impose a new person on the band, either in their business meetings or in their recording sessions. I've often felt like Lennon gets away with uh, a giant passive aggressive tactic here, which is 
he lets Yoko Ono take the heat for all of the disruption that he basically imposes on the other members of the band. It's very difficult to imagine any other band member mm. bringing along uh, an outsider, yeah. a Japanese-American avant-garde artist, into Beatle business meetings mm. and expecting everyone to just lump it. Lennon <laughs> is the only member of the band with that kind of authority, that right. kind of power. And the fact that he does it and then lets her take the heat for it, I think, is really, you know, unfortunate. Hmm. What is your sense of the relationship he had with Yoko Ono and, and the influence that she had over him? Well, again, I think this is another area of great um, misunderstanding. I do think she has a terrific influence over him. I think what's not discussed enough is how ready he is for that influence. He is. Uh, already in the um, autumn of 1966, um, quietly, privately voicing his uh, insecurities about how long this Beatle thing can last. So this is even before Sergeant Pepper. He's already thinking about what happens next. Mm. And he's very, you know, as, and the more you understand the Beatles' career, the more sense it makes that they really are um, topping themselves every single album. And it's really hard to figure out if you are one of the drivers, the songwriting drivers expected to come up with the material year in and year out that's going to dazzle people over and over and over again, how long you can sustain it. Mm-hmm. And um, by the by, the post-Pepper period, within a year of Pepper, when they take a break and, and go on a meditation retreat in India in the spring of 1968, this has only gotten more pronounced. Now, this is not to say that he has lost his faith in the band. If anything, he has really, he has kind of divided loyalties, right? He feels himself moving away from the band creatively, but he also, this is a cocoon that um, he's been in for a long time and it's very safe. And you know, these are people who are basically brothers to him, their family, and they know his deepest, darkest secrets. And they are still quite strong as a working creative unit. But he is he is thinking, what are the next steps? What happens mm. post Beatles? And when he meets Yoko, he finds uh, the very first uh, woman that he's gotten involved with who feels totally comfortable saying no to him, mm. feels totally comfortable saying, oh, you know, walking into a Beatles session and being completely unintimidated, and you guys do everything in 4-4 and, and diatonic. Why don't you try, try some different modes and do experiment a little bit? Why don't you guys... In other words, she throws a wrench in the works. And this is really precisely what appeals to Lennon about Yoko Ono, is her nerve and her creativity and her willingness to pull the thread and to pull the curtain from the Beatles myth and say, hey, let's let's mix it up. Now, it's very tangled and very messy. And it's in the same period where he and Paul McCartney start to write songs completely separately. They, mm. they stop writing as uh, co-authors of the songs and finishing each other's songs. They have been growing apart creatively that way for a while. Right. Um, and so Yoko Ono really, I just think, kind of accelerates change that is already in the offing here. And because she's an outsider, I think it's very unfortunate she's an outsider and she's Japanese. And so there, there tends to be this, um, this racist response to, mm. I mean, I've been through screenings of Let It Be where Yoko appears and people hiss. And, and I just yeah. think it's absolutely mortifying yeah. as a Beatle fan to sit there in an audience of Beatle fans and you realize people actually think less of Yoko Ono because she's Japanese. I mean, mm. it's, it's it's galling, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's actually it's it, Lenin was trying to literally was was trying to embrace the most outsider element he could. Yeah. He was trying to literally, what is the most outlandish eccentric thing I can do? And he came upon it in the person of Yoko Ono, and he embraced it completely, and that wound up combusting everything. And he, they both were a little bit taken aback at how powerful, how completely tribal and like intolerant their whole culture really was. They felt really like, wait a second, just because just because we want to be creative, you know. 
And so people react to this Yoko screaming business in Toronto as being like this wildly offensive thing. And actually, you have to understand that what Lenin was trying to do was literally like tear down the walls of Jericho. Like this, mm. this is the perfect way to rip a hole in the whole picture is to right. just have Yoko scream for 20 minutes. <laughs> and there's something really wonderfully funny about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, a deeply eccentric and the most radical move you could make if you were a Beatle. So yeah, yeah. that's the way I look at it. Mm. And mm. I think it's very unfortunate that that racial element enters because I think it's totally unnecessary. Yeah. And I think people miss the humor of Yoko Ono. Yeah, and it's one of right. the key things that Lennon always talks about with her is how funny she is. And people, people they, they misread her. They project yeah. all this weird stuff onto her. And I, I really try to speak out against it whenever I can. Yeah, well, she definitely has her own opinion and definitely has a very unique view, that's for sure. Uh, and hats off to her for, for, I guess, being that strong person that she was um, in, in that regard. You know, out of all the the chaos uh, post Beatles, um, we have this wonderful career that George Harrison ends up having. Well, so it's a very interesting uh, thread to trace throughout the Beatles. Is first you trace how Lennon and McCartney become completely independent. They they are writing together and they are a songwriting team early on, and then they split apart later. And the the other thread is George Harrison sort of comes of age as a songwriter of his own and begins contributing by the White Album some really, really sturdy, strong stuff. Now, yeah. uh, having said that, I realized, yeah, he has three really strong tracks on Revolver, too. So he does, he, people perceive him as peaking later than he actually does. He does come to the fore. He is a songwriter to be reckoned with as early as Revolver, I would say. Mm. Um, and then he, uh, he launches his own, first solo effort that all things must pass and he has this great backlog of material and it's quite obvious at the time when he puts out all things must pass which is a, a four-sided solo album uh that uh, the beatles have been busy rejecting george harrison's songs for a couple mm. of years mm. uh, and that some of this material was clearly in in development during the let it be sessions in january of 69 first we have recordings of all Things Must Pass from that era, mm-hmm. with the Beatles playing on the George Harrison song, mm-hmm. that they just did not prioritize and pick for uh, the Abbey Road album or the Let It Be album. So he had a backlog of material, and it was a kind of wildly ambitious debut from the quiet Beatles, who was never really the quiet one. Um, and so there was this great sort of giant rabbit he pulled from a hat there in 1970 by having this huge hit with My Sweet Lord and mm. you know a very very successful solo album yeah. that's 70 or 71 I get mixed mm. up I think it's 70 mm. late 70 mm. and then Bangladesh is 71 right. now you mentioned 70 and 7 comes to mind because I think in the article you referenced that the Beatles were around for seven years is that is that right they were together for seven years oh Here's how I count it, right? Their first session at EMI is in uh, the autumn of 1962. Okay. Right? And their last sessions together as a band uh, uh, is August of 69. So that's seven years. And that is, you know, one of the most tremendous outpourings of creativity and aesthetic uh, advancement that you can find anywhere. Yeah. But especially in pop music, yeah. um, you just don't see catalogs that rich develop in that no. small time frame. That is absolutely amazing when you think of that in seven short years, what they accomplished uh, and, and the transformations that they went through. I guess, like you said, though, the technology uh, gave them some of that ability. And the fact that they decided not to tour and their producers certainly did wonders with a lot of their material in the studio. Well, uh, uh, you know, I think that there there is this perfect match between George Martin, their producer, and the Beatles' rock creativity. You know, very famously, the Beatles were uh, folk musicians, um, and what that means is they were not school. They were not. They did not attend Western music school. They didn't know Western music theory. They couldn't read or write music. Mm. Um, it was all an oral activity for them. They yeah. did it all by ear. Yeah. And there is a strain of Western musicality that looks down on the folk musician. I try and just think of it as a different stream of thought, a different mode, a different discipline, a different craft. There's a there's a folk tradition, and then there's a written tradition. Mm. Um, and 
uh, the folk tradition is obviously a lot older, yeah. but um, the Beatles, you know, were, they worked in that folk tradition and excelled. Yeah. Um, I don't think that the Beatles were successful because of George Martin. I do think that George Martin brought a musical literacy to the material that actually helped elevate it mm. in certain ways. I do think the Beatles would have been a, a fabulous combustible band if they had not been associated with mm. a trained a Western musician. Mm. But, um, you know, that that alchemy is very, very curious and very, very rich and interesting on both sides, right? right. They had the open-mindedness to embrace a classically trained Western musician to help them with arrangements and recording. George Martin was open-minded enough as a classically trained Western musician to completely embrace their method and the folk tradition. Mm. I mean, he did not look down on that folk right. tradition. Right. Uh, there were many producers in that era who did. Right. Uh, we're running out of time, and one Beatle that we haven't mentioned so far, uh, Tim, is, is uh, Ringo Starr. Um, he's still around. He's still kicking. He's still doing some live gigs and stuff. Well, I I would have talked about Ringo happily this whole time because I'm a huge Ringo fan. Really? I find him an irreproachable character, and more importantly, I think he is one of the most underrated musicians in the history of um, the set of ears that he has on him, the fluency of his style. You always, you will never find a drummer who will uh, cut Ringo down. All drummers worship yeah. Ringo, yes. and they all talk about his feel. Yep. And his feel was very, very special, and it was um, fluid enough to accommodate all of these different sensibilities. Right. So mm. you think about three writers in the band; they're all bringing him material, and he is adjusting his feel for every for every particular situation. Mm -hmm. He rarely sounds like the same drummer from track to track. Um, and he never repeats his patterns ever. So you find a pattern that he discovers for she loves you or in my life. And you would never hear that pattern anywhere else. He has singular patterns for every single track. And he's just, he's just this fantastic glue of a, of a personality who obviously is friends with everyone in the band. Everyone in the band plays on Ringo's solo albums. Ringo plays on all the other people's solo albums where neither John nor George ever play on a Paul McCartney solo album. And McCartney never plays on a George solo album or a John solo album. So there's the politics of the band right there. Right. Solo careers. A nicely said, a great way for us to end the conversation, Tim. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Tim Riley, Associate Professor of Journalism and Graduate Program Director at Emerson College in Boston. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Stay tuned, because when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Sarah Milroy, the Chief Curator at McMichael, as well as Anishinaabe artist, Bonnie Devine, right after this. <laughs> Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and uh, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to have uh, with me on the show Sarah Milroy. She's the chief curator at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, as well as Anishinaabe Ojibwe artist Bonnie Devine. And they're here to talk about the McMichael and what's going to be happening in the fall at the gallery and the exhibits there. Welcome to the show, uh, Sarah. It's my great pleasure to be here with my friend Bonnie. Yes. Yes, Bonnie, uh, Ani, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Ani. Now, uh, ladies, there's some really uh, exciting stuff going on, at Michael. And uh, I guess you're, you're kicking things off with this this massive survey of of Michael's collection of Indigenous art. Yeah, we're making a show uh, that's going to go up on November 21st um, called "Early Days: Indigenous Art at the McMichael. And the show is really gathering together. Um, it starts with the, the objects that were collected really by the McMichaels back in the back in the 70s and late 60s, all the way through to a whole slate of new acquisitions that we've made over the past two years to kind of shore up our collection of Indigenous art because there had been a, a long kind of fallow period of not much collecting happening. Mm. So we want to kind of you know those those new acquisitions have been 
uh, pull together to really resonate with existing things that we had. And so they're in dialogue with the past and we're super excited about opening this up uh, both just to share it with the public, but also to learn more uh, particularly about the historic pieces that we have in our collection. Mm. And, and who might some of those artists be included in that? Uh, among the emerging artists, uh, sorry, among the new acquisitions, um, Nadia Mir, uh, Lawrence Paul, uh, Yaxwell Upton, um, Rebecca Belmore, Kent Monkman, um, it's uh, Janine Fry-Najutli from out west. Sorry, I should have put a list in front no of worries. myself. I'm working from Dana Claxton. Um, then we also have really important early works by uh, people like Shelley Nero mm. and uh, Faye Heavyshield, some of the sort of landmark works that people made, um, you know, mm. back a few decades. Um, some of their first uh, sales to museums were to the McMichael. This is true of Alex Janvier, certainly Carl Beam. And so we've always really had this really important stake in the idea of Indigenous art as part of, you know, the Canadian experience and being culturally important and, and to be venerated. But it's, it's an aspect of our activity as a museum that's been kind of overshadowed, you know, by our extraordinary collection of the Group of Seven and their, their subtler contemporaries like mm. Emily Carr and David Mel. Mm. So this, this show is really trying to, um, you know, put this aspect of our collection out there and invite the wider community of uh, both Indigenous and settler scholars to come and weigh in and be with us and help us to understand better what we have. And Bonnie has been an important part of that. Yes, of course. And, and Bonnie, we're going to get to you. I, I'm trying to save you till, till, till the end, sort of. <laughs> so, so please don't think I'm ignoring you. Just wanna, no, no. Um, so, so I know you're, you're, doing, you're going to be leading this site-specific mural project, and we're going to get to that for sure. As you were talking there, I had to... Uh, it, what jumped into my mind was earlier this month, we did a, a, an interview with someone south of the border at the Heard Museum. Yes, and uh, their exhibition that they they have ongoing. Um, I was I was unfamiliar with the Herd Museum, I must say, uh, uh-huh. but it was fascinating to talk with with the, the person there about the uh, about the, the the museum itself. I had no idea it was such a, a large. Um, a, a lar- yeah, wow. Yes. yes. Um, and you know we were down around Phoenix a, a number of years ago, and I would have loved to have gone and, and seen that. But uh, anyway, they have a wonderful collection. The thing about Canada, of course, about this territory that we now call Canada, rather, is that um, a lot of our really important um, cultural patrimony that was made on on these lands is now in the U.S. or Mm. in Germany or Mm. in France or in England. Right. Um, We we had a a big project that I did uh, with our now director at McMichael, uh, Ian Desjardins on Emily Carr. And during that project, we went deeply into the collections of Northwest Coast material that was held in the UK and just had an amazing experience um, looking at these objects and also bringing Jim Hart and other carvers from the Northwest Coast to, you know, come and access these collections with us. So we're really all about trying to, you know, get everyone in the room um, that should be in the room to understand, you know, what, what we have and, um, you know, generate new knowledge and understanding. So mm. over the past, like I'm just in the middle of writing all the extended labels for this show, which is a, which is a really big um, task. It's now clocking in well over 7,000 words wow. just, just for that. Mm. And I, I counted the other day and I've done 40 interviews with, <laughs> you know, and Bonnie's one of them writing about some Great Lakes material that we're, that we're bringing forward. But, you know, uh, really trying to find everyone who has something interesting to say. And what, what we will do is we will gather um, all these voices together eventually in a publication Mm. Uh, that will come out a couple of years from now. But in the meantime, what we're going to do is um, we're asking these participants to write us an essay on the object that we were talking about, and Mm. then we'll make that available as they've come into us over the next seven months. We'll make that available to visitors to the museum on QR codes that will be uh, installed next to the work. So the exhibition is kind of an open laboratory, Mm -hmm. and we'll be adding knowledge to it as we go through the process. Um, but it's, it's, I'm telling you, it's deep and rich, and there's many, many years of work to be done here. Wow. Now, it's along with, Yes, very exciting. And, and, and now alongside with the early days uh, uh, piece that's going to be happening, you've got the uh, Christie Belcourt, the uprising of the power of Mother Earth. Yes. 
Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to um, access Christie's show because, of course, as you know, her work really centers on respect for the land and water right, clean water rights and so on. And what's interesting is when you walk through the group of seven hang that's currently on, you walk through into Christie Belcourt is in the adjacent gallery and the last works in the Group of Seven show are Franklin Carmichael's paintings of Cobalt, which was an mm. important mining town in northern Ontario. Mm. So that juxtaposition between the settler, you know, looking mm. at resource extraction in northern mm. Ontario and then Christie in the next room, I think is going to be wonderfully, wonderfully resonant. Right. For visitors. Really give people a double take. Right. Well, just before we get to uh, Bonnie... I'm going to let everyone yeah. know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Here in on the show with me is uh, Sarah Milroy. She's the chief curator of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, as well as Bonnie Devine. Uh, she, of course, the artist, and uh, she's going to be heading up this uh, site-specific mural project at the McMichael Gallery. Uh, so, Bonnie, it's a pleasure to have you on the show as well. This sounds uh, pretty exciting, what you're going to be doing. Um, yeah, sure. It's uh, totally exciting. Um, started out as a a germ of an idea, uh, a small location just outside the McMichael, the Humber River, mm. and uh, and kind of grew from there into a uh, very rich investigation uh, into both the geography and the history of uh, of that site. Can you guys give me a little bit of the backstory on this? How did this How did this all come about? Well, I'll tell you what what struck me. Uh, as a, I've just been at the McMichael for a couple of years, but what struck me is that there was nowhere in the museum experience where our visitors were kind of reckoning with the land that we are on. Mm-hmm. Like we do have a number of works by leading, you know, indigenous artists from Ontario, the most famous of them being Norvell Morriso, but there was nothing for the museum goer, and I think particularly the children mm. that come to be with us at McMichael, that told them about the land they were on. Right. And as I worked my way into it, this is what Bonnie's been working on. We came to realize that there was really important trade routes and communities that had been in this area for obviously for millennia. And so mm. I phoned Bonnie and said, you know, would you be willing to look into this with us? Because we need to make that present. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, Bonnie, you, you, you took her up on the offer, obviously. And, um, and then you started to, to delve into this. Can you give us more details? What did you start to find? What were some well, of the things that you Sure, about? sure. I, I think uh, where I'd want to start uh, is with land acknowledgement. Mm. Because, of course, uh, very, very much in our, um, in our consciousness now is this, uh, uh, this desire by uh, settler people to acknowledge land. And, and what I found curious all the time is that uh, the land acknowledgement declarations that people often make don't make any reference to the land at all. They're mm. really talking more about people and yes. political things. Yes. So I was really interested in this notion of um, acknowledging the land. And um, and for me, you can't acknowledge the land without acknowledging the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, the McMichael sits on, on a, a branch of the Humber River. And uh, this used to be... Uh, an important uh, connector between Lake Ontario and Georgian Bay, Lake, Lake Huron. And a connector in what way? Well, it was a, a trade route for sure. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a portage. Uh, but it was also a cultural connector, uh, meaning that people from uh, the southern Great Lakes could uh, converse and communicate with people in the north. So it's a great voice, actually. Mm. Mm. It's a great um, organ of uh, breath and uh, speech. And I was very, very interested in this and uh, began looking, uh, with Sarah's help, with, uh, with the, um, the collaboration of the McMichael, into um, a site on, um, on the Humber, just south of the McMichael, called the Seed Barker site. And... Um, I had been um, initially focused on the Mississaugas of mm. the credit because, of course, they are deeply implicated yes. um, in this boundary um, through their um, occupation of the land um, and the Toronto Purchase. And so I was very, very interested in, in that relatively contemporary 
history mm. of Toronto and settler interventions, but there's a, there's an older history. And, and when we went to see the Seed Barker site in August, just, uh, I guess a month and a half ago, it became clear that there is a, um, a mass of story. There is a body of literature and knowledge, um, that is waiting to be told. And, and, uh, I was, uh, very moved um, at that site. We saw a number of artifacts there that uh, they just drifted into the story and they, they, they won't be dislodged. And uh, they, uh, they have become a, um, a fulcrum or a, uh, a focal point uh, for what I want to talk about uh, when I talk about this organ of exchange um, that extends from uh, Toronto, from uh, Lake Ontario, uh, right up through uh, the peninsula of southern Ontario to Lake Simcoe and beyond. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's become an enthralling uh, exercise. You know, I think Bonnie thought this was maybe going to be something that, that wouldn't take quite so much of her life up. But, you know, as we're getting into it, it's becoming kind of all-absorbing. But I think, <laughs> um, I guess we should have known, eh, Bonnie? Well, you know, I mean, I think, yes, for sure, because uh, once we begin to acknowledge the land, I mean, this is what is missing from a lot of the discourse um, around land acknowledgements. Once we begin to acknowledge the land, of course, the land begins to acknowledge us, and we begin to have a dialogue. That's, that is really what the goal of that land acknowledgement is, is to bring us into consciousness with another being in our presence. And so, um, so this is what's happening, is that um, the the land is rising up and starting to uh, disclose um, some of the stories that lie in it. And uh, so, yeah, we've we've been talking to uh, the, the Huron Wendat people now because they've become mm. um, a part of this story as as the uh, as the history of the site uh, deepened. Um, you know, not that the Mississaugas are, are not still there, but that there are other inhabitants of this place um, whose story actually has has been in large part erased, and that is the uh, the Wendat. Yeah, so, it's very true. Yeah, so so yeah, so we've been talking to uh, the Wendat uh, in Quebec. It's become very very clear that. Um, we must honor um, an even deeper protocol than the one that we have with the Mississauga, mm. and an, an even deeper land acknowledgement than what we have with the uh, uh, Toronto Purchase and all of the reparations that have gone on around that. And, uh, and so their presence has become um, absolutely essential, and, uh, and we're waiting, actually, right now for their permission uh, to proceed uh, with the uh, telling of the story that we want to tell. Wow, that sounds really, really wonderful and and uh, magical almost. That sounds so cool. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what people will um, will see or do? You know, it's it's. Um, will people be walking through this? Yes, yes. It's in a uh, a passageway, which is really quite uh, apropos, actually, of the the theme of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they um, as they walk into there's a, an antechamber, there are two walls and then an archway, and then you walk up a ramp up to the second floor. And so uh, that antechamber will be um, full of um, pictures, and then there will be a depiction of the um, of the walk uh, from Lake Ontario up to uh, Lake Huron. Um, on, in the rampway, so it's uh, it's quite extensive. It'll be painted. I'm, I'm also um, going to be including some copper uh, um, leaf because that seems important uh, in terms of uh, some of the. You know, Sarah talked about resource extraction. Um, some of the uh, um, the remnants from the land that are still resonant uh, in their materiality. Um, there are other objects we, we are negotiating uh, to include um, some artifacts, but uh, again, this is uh, this is a matter of protocol uh, with the original um, 
occupants of the land. And so uh, it was quite sensitive, actually, to, uh, to try to, uh, uh, to have access to those things mm. and show them in public and to show them in a proper way. Of course. And, and I think that actually uh, this is another um, aspect of the project that has um, revealed itself over time, which is the, um, the notion that there are protocols for talking about these things mm. and um, for revealing them. And um, I think that too often, you know, when we talk about public art uh, and we talk about public space or, you know, the, um, the commons, um, we forget that um, this, is a, um, this is a European tradition and, and not necessarily uh, in sync with mm. um, the, tr- the older traditions here in, uh, mm. in this place called Turtle Island. And so we need to uh, reaffirm those older protocols and we need to ensure that um, we aren't um, unwittingly uh, trespassing or doing harm uh, to objects that, that have been abused and neglected for so long. Mm. You, you know, as you were talking and as you're going through this, what runs through my mind is I could see this being expanded into an actual uh, physical journey, not only maybe a walking journey uh, down the Humber or maybe maybe a, a portage of its own, you know, just taking a canoe trip down the Humber to explore these these areas that you're, you're referring to. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe you guys are thinking about that in the future or something. Well, I mean, the, the carrying place, the, the, one of the terms mm-hmm. for this passageway mm-hmm. or the thoroughfare is the carrying place trail. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's been, I mean, it runs right under the bluffs of mm-hmm. where the McMichael said, and yet it hasn't really been something that has been foregrounded and the actual carrying place trail that goes all the way down to the lake mm. Ontario has actually been interrupted by like roads and parking right. lots and all that kind of thing. Sure. So, I mean, one wonderful ambition would be someday to reignite is sort of reconnect that whole, yes. um, pat, yeah. you know, thoroughfare so that in recognition of the really incredibly vibrant, trade and cultural knowledge that was passing up and down that yeah. for, as I say, for millennia. Yes. So at least Bonnie is going to help us to get that on everyone's, you know, mental map. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the public, she's, I think the plan is for her to start working a little bit after the middle of this month and be with us for a month or so. And, and uh, the public will be able to uh, observing social distancing, able to, you know, talk with Bonnie about her work and there'll be information there for people to see what she's up to. Right. And we're just so lucky that we're going to have um, you with us, Bonnie. We really feel very, very fortunate to have you and your knowledge and your beautiful work under our roof. Well, thank you. I'm hoping that um, COVID. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, that was in the back of my mind, especially you yep. know, this week. So yes, we, uh, we are, uh, Continuing to uh, keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, Bonnie and I were uh, we're talking about that, and I think you know should um, should we decide that it's more prudent to to wait? I think what we would probably do is get at this you know in the spring or summer. Mm. And, and as I said to Bonnie the other day, you know the Carrying Place Trail has been there for five thousand years. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't happen next month, that's going to be okay. But it's definitely you know critical to our plans for the institution and certainly for this project early days. We're Right. We're really proud that we're in a position to do this work now with Bonnie. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned about COVID. I was going to ask you about that and how it might affect things, especially as yeah. we seem to be entering a you know a, a second phase of this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to to ask about was um, you're going to have this opening scheduled right now, at least uh, on the mm-hmm. 19th of October, and you're going to have uh, Mississauga's elder there, uh, Gary Sue. And, uh, and I'm just, is there, is there some thought to being put to maybe having a, a Wendat representative here on Wendat person as well? Absolutely. Or? We are, um, as I was saying, we, we are in, um, consultation with the Huron Wendat mm. in Wendaki in, in Quebec. Um, and, uh, absolutely, uh, this would be, um, I would say a condition mm. of, okay. um, of moving forward is that, uh, that protocol is, uh, is included. Right. So, yeah, so we're still um, waiting for word from them. And this would have to be um, virtually, I think. Mm. Um, Standing, we might be able to, I mean, we have this blessing at McMichael of these incredible grounds. And, uh, 
you know, another possibility, Bonnie, is that we might be able to be outdoors mm. uh, under the sky with the trees mm. around us and, and this would be lovely. Yeah. talks about land, you know, mm-hmm. uh-huh. that could be, um, you know, that could be recorded and shared. Yeah. But, uh, that sounds wonderful, and let's hope that does happen. But like you say, if not, then uh, possibly, <laughs> possibly postpone until a, a later date. <laughs> um, because as you mentioned, the Carrying Place Trail is probably not going anywhere within the next little while. So, definitely not. Definitely uh, not. Now, uh, scheduled though, it is run. It is scheduled to run for about a month, I guess. The project itself. The making of it. Oh, the making of it. Bonnie, you were thinking it would, and then we'll leave it up probably for well over a year. Mm. We, we, one of the things we want to do at Mount Michael is to have a kind of ongoing series of site specific installations in this very important ramp that kind of leads you up uh, into the temporary exhibition space. I should add too that Bonnie kind of alluded to this, but the view out the window where this, where this space begins is one of the most epic views in in the museum. It Mm -hmm. looks right off the bluff. Um, out into the treetops, and it's really quite breathtaking. So we plan to, you know, invite a series of artists, probably a commission every two years or so. We're just kind of working it out right now and seeking a sponsor for the ongoing series. Mm. But, um, you know, that that space is always going to be charged with someone's imagination mm. going forward. But mm. we're, that the series is initiating, as it rightly should, with, with Bonnie and with this deeper look at the land that we stand on at McMichael. Well, it's charging my imagination right now just thinking about this possibility. <laughs> Come on up. Come on up. <laughs> you bet, for sure. That's uh, going to be great. So right now, as you mentioned, it's scheduled for October 19th at 10 a.m., uh, beginning with an opening ceremony hosted by uh, Elder Gary Sue from the Mississaugas of the Credit and mm-hmm. possibly uh, virtually from uh, Huron Wendat representatives as well. Um <laughs> And that, that beginning is the beginning of, uh, just to be clear, the beginning of Bonnie's process. But yes. if people want to, to um, gather to see Bonnie's work, it would be more into the middle of November. Right. And right. in the meantime, she'll be there working and is very happy to, to talk and visit right. with whoever comes to see. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, ladies, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and, and uh, have this update about what's going to be happening at McMichael. And we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Yeah, very welcome. Thank you. No, you bet. Uh, Nyawagoa. And um, as I say, once again, always a pleasure to hear about what's going on at McMichael. So uh, we look forward to speaking with you again. Uh, and should this be postponed, um, let's try and connect again, Bonnie, so that we can get an update on this and, and you can oh, maybe... That's okay, that would be great. That's great. We'll certainly let you know. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care, take care everyone. Okay, take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. 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 They're the voices of Sarah Milroy. She's the chief curator of McMichael Canadian Art Collection, as well as Anishinaabe Ojibwe artist Bonnie Devine, and she will be leading the site-specific mural project that we've just been talking about, scheduled to start uh, her work on October 19th, and uh, for about a month work on that, and it will be up there. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you listening each and every day right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. See you next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.